0: Colleagues, Anthony McKay, CEO and co-chair of the board of the National Center on Education and the Economy, welcoming you to our Global Ed Talk series. And today, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome our good friend and colleague, Professor Robert Schwartz. Bob, welcome. Thank you. Happy to do this with you, Tommy. Well, it's great to have you with us. And let me just say this, I won't do a long intro bio note here, because uh, you are known far and wide, both in the US and globally, uh, not only as obviously a a Harvard-based scholar for a significant part of your career, but uh, you've had multiple roles in government, in education at all levels, certainly leading foundations and certainly, uh, let me put it this way, Bob, an activist, in the field, and today we wanted to focus, uh, as we have talked about here, of the, the future of our young people as they enter into the future economy and workforce. The focus we really want to put on this conversation is how can we do this in a way that young people can have a future that is wholly supportive of a thriving life Economy, society, and in terms of their individual and our collective well being. So, Bob, this has been such a significant part of your recent work. You've led this work uh, nationally. Uh, pathways to Prosperity, your pathways network across multiple states uh, has grown, and we'll talk about that. But my entry point for you is the ideas that you have now turned into practice and the potential for this to grow. And develop at a crucial moment when we're talking about the future of our workforce those ideas have come from multiple sources but you're a globalist you're an internationalist say a word about the way in which you've connected to the work globally well in part thanks to nce
1: and as well as uh, my colleagues and friends at oecd i've had uh, opportunities over the last uh, 10 or 15 years really to take a look at um, what I think of as uh, some of the highest performing vocational and, and uh, education and training systems in the world, uh, both in Europe, Switzerland, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, uh, Australia, Singapore. Um, I haven't, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. And uh, I think by and large, uh, the US uh, is, not, is, is, is not and should not be on anybody's list of high-performing uh, vocational systems and i think you know looking you know whether or not um, as you know tony uh, my wife and i contributed two chapters to a book that mark tucker uh, edited and that the harvard education press uh, published um looking across basically four countries um two high-performing uh, singapore and switzerland and to uh, the other two biggest economies, neither of which is high performing in, in, in this particular realm, uh, the US and China. And when I think particularly about Switzerland, it's the best example, I think, of um, a uh, what we call the dual system uh, approach, where young people are spending a significant chunk of their time in an apprenticeship model working for a firm and with aligned um, uh, Uh, kind of, you know, school-based vocational education, and they're also spending another chunk of time learning the basics of the industry in a kind of industry-wide training center. Um, Singapore is the best example we've seen of a school-based vocational system, but um, industry is heavily involved in that system as well, and if you visit, you know, one of these three mega um vocational uh schools that i visited you know maybe a decade ago in, in singapore um you have these unbelievably high quality programs so the, the, you know the auto mechanics program is done in partnership with rolls-royce uh the restaurant training program is in partnership with paul Bocuse. um the, there's an aviation program where they have a boeing you know 720 something or other to work on yeah and yes. so you have got you know obviously industry uh, bringing bringing itself inside, in a sense inside uh the school. Um so those so yeah i do think that um the internationally there's a ton that the us you know has to learn from these h- highest
0: performing uh systems. Um and just, to, yeah just clarify a little again about the distinction between a a school based approach to this. Yeah. And What you might say is an industry or
1: employer-based approach. It's a a work-based approach, yeah. The difference, you know, pretty simply, I mean, the school-based systems, uh, you know, are almost entirely school-based, but as I say, at their best, industry is an active participant, and even the school-based programs that I know or systems that I know typically have built in at least a six-month internship, so students get, you know, a significant um, work-based learning experience. Obviously, it's much more intensive in the so-called dual systems, where most of your time you're really spending you know, inside a you know a, a company. The other thing I'd say, you know, particularly about the dual system models is, you know, I always you know when I, I when I, I think about them, when I tell people to you know I've taken I've led my wife and I have led three study tours of the Swiss system, and I always say. Don't worry about the details of the design of the system. We can explain it to you later. Talk to employers and talk to young people, and you'll get a real sense of you know why do employers do this and from young people what the experience is really like. And I think at their best, these systems are not simply about preparing kids to make the transition from school to work, but really from adolescence to adulthood. That is there's a strong, whether whether it's by intention or whether it's just kind of the built into the culture of these systems, young people just get a ton of support and, you know, in, in this, in the process. And because these systems, you know, these programs play out over a three-year period, or in some cases, even a four-year period, these young people are in touch with lots of adults who are giving them coaching and support along the way. And, um, you know, again, when you talk to employers and ask them about it, they often will give you anecdotes that go, you know, Somebody at a meeting we were asked once asked, what do you do if a kid screws up, you know? And expecting, you know, we were gonna get an answer about how I we disciplined. And the, and the guy, he ran a plumbing company, I remember. And he said, I've the kid in and I put my arm around him and I say, let's go have a walk. And, you know, it's just a very different attitude than, you know, you would expect, you know, if it were a summer program, and the kid was only there for a few weeks and the kid screwed up, you'd probably say, why should I b- bother my arm around him and having a chat yeah. with him to find out what's going on in his life that might have led him not to show up one day or to do something that was, you know, out of character. So that's what I mean by
0: yeah. You know, no, I mean, this is a, this is a serious commitment of time. This is one, two, three years we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. yeah. So this, well, you know, I take your point entirely about the fact that this is an approach that takes on the development of young people and therefore builds their sense of agency, their competence, their their confidence. Now yes. you've led. You've led and participated in multiple international benchmarking exercises, including, of course, with and through NCE. You said at the start of this conversation that you wouldn't be putting the US in the category of high-performing career and technical or vocational education training systems. So as you've come back, as NCE has attempted to do, and translate that into a US context, how would you identify... The three or four initiatives that over the last decade at least are taking us in the right direction as far as you're concerned learning from the high performing systems
1: well you alluded earlier to the pathways to prosperity network which is a network that my wife and i and colleagues at jobs for the future started uh, in 2012. Um, next year will be you know will be our 10th anniversary um halfway through uh, Nancy Hoffman, my wife, and I wrote a book uh, on the lessons we'd learned so far called Learning for Careers, another Harvard Education Press uh, book, to a commercial for both the Mark Tecker edited book and, Good. and, and, and our right. book. Um, and we were trying to not only kind of looking at the lessons we'd learned from our own work, but we were also trying to kind of look across the field in the US and say, kind of, where are we uh, as a field and how are we you know, growing and developing? And I should say, right from the beginning, We took a kind of wider view than than thinking of only of CTE, which tends to be very kind of siloed and defined by a set of you know federal program rules in some ways. Um, CTE, you know, of course, is like anything else; it's highly variable. There are some spectacularly good CTE programs, um, but because of our history, CTE is too often in the U.S. You know, been seen as you know a wonderful thing for other people's children, uh, if you know what I mean. I mean, it's not had the kind of status that the strongest um, vocational education and training systems around the world have with, with, with parents and with policymakers and others. So we, we didn't want to be kind of limited under that umbrella, although our work obviously has incorporated um, CTE. But we also, you know, the U.S. tended until pretty recently to think of, you know. CTE was for, ki- for kids not going on to college. That's, you know There was the college bound, and then there were the career bound, and they were in two separate groups. And obviously, the status difference was pretty marked. As the country has come to the view, looking at the economy that we have and the economy that we're going to have is that we're emerging into, that everybody's going to need some credential beyond high school to have a shot at participating in this economy. Uh, if you, you know, if you have only a high school diploma, the high likelihood is, yes, there are still some jobs that high school graduates can get in some regions of the country, you know, you can do reasonably well, but, you know, looking at, you know, the the country as a whole, um, by and large, high school graduates only are consigned to low wage, low skill jobs, and it's hard to move up. So our focus has been on all kids needing to leave high school, both prepared to go on to get to have a solid enough education founding, foundation to go on to get some further education and training and we argue that a first post secondary credential but one that's deliberately designed to have value in the labor market could be an industry certification it could be a one year certificate in a high growth field better yet it would be a two year career focused you know kind of technical degree those are the kind of, that's what we mean by first post secondary credential and we argue that if you look at the, at the skills and experiences that kids have coming out of the Singapore system, the Swiss system, or many others, and you try to compare that with the US, these, the logical comparison is not with high school graduates because our CTE programs are so limited in both scope and duration and intensity but with our community college graduates. Now, U.S. community colleges are um, two-year post-secondary institutions. They are typically open access. All you need is a high school diploma to enter one. Um, They typically serve a broad range of learners, people who are coming just to take a a course or two uh, for their own um, avocational interests. Uh, They typically, their main programs typically are either two-year programs designed to provide the first two years of a four-year, you know, university education, and you transfer at the end of your two years into a four-year college university, or they are designed to give students a two-year degree that then you can then move directly into the labor market with. One of our problems is that too many students get two-year degrees in liberal arts and general studies, which, if you take them to the labor market, don't get you very far. The two-year degrees that matter are the ones that are in high demand, high growth fields, in a healthcare specialty and in information technology, you know, in advanced manufacturing, engineering, you know, bioscience, whatever. There's a you know broad range of, 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 of programs. So we decided, at least in designing our programs, to design programs in our pathways network that span at least the last 2 years of high school and the first 2 years of post secondary education and we think that that, that those could provide if well structured and well designed something that even remotely approximates the kind of of you know skills and and you know un- learning kinds of experiences that really would enable people to make a successful transition you know into the labor market we also obviously always encourage young people to then you know, don't see this as terminal we always say you know keep while well, keeping open the option to go on and continue you know to a to a, to a four-year uh degree but for a lot of us you know because we're so focused in the us as we should be right now on you know income and wealth inequality and on kind of our what i think of as stalled economic mobility we're just not equipping anywhere near enough young people with the script skills and credentials to actually move from families with, you know, low wealth, for example, into, you know, jobs that can really start moving them up the up the economic and, and social ladder. So that's been the focus of our work, as it is a lot of other organizations.
0: Absolutely. So tell me this. You mentioned um, a 10-year anniversary yeah. of the Pathways Network, right? So if you reflect on this decade, yeah. and I'll come back and ask you a question about the current uh political and policy environment yep right at a federal level but before I do, let me just ask you, reflecting on the last decade, are there a couple of lessons that you would now say listen we yeah. know this two, two big lessons um,
1: One you know that we kind of knew going in but it's still a huge problem and that is not just our network but these programs like ours generally um, tend to start with high schools. And often the motivation is, you know, use exposure to the world of work and careers, creating career academies or other models as a way of engaging students, motivating them, giving them at least some sense of, you know, what the world of work is like and helping them, you know, with the goal of getting them to complete high school and then maybe we'll worry about what happens next. And laudable as that is, if your goal ultimately is preparing people for employment, you know, our view is you've got to take the next step. So, one re- so that, that explains why we've put come to see community colleges as the central public institution for this work, with high schools on the one side and employers on the other. And the second reason, obviously, the second big l- lesson here is um, this work has to be much more demand driven. And what that really means is you really need, if you can, to start with employers, yes. start and build, you know, Build on the connections employers by and large, um, those that actually look to any education institution to help them solve their talent problems, their natural tendency is to go to community colleges, not to high schools. And I think, you know, US employers have a hard time imagining that 16 and 17 year olds could be adding value at their workplace. One reason it's we like to take employers to places like Switzerland and Germany is they can see for themselves that with support, the kinds of things that Young people at 16 and 17 really can can be supported to be able to to do. So, it's you know in other words, we think of this as kind of backward mapping. If you start with the employers, you then kind of connect them to community colleges, and some a lot of employers already have connections to community colleges. They tend to go to them though for. Quick upskilling programs for their incumbent workers. There's some new round of technology comes in, they'll hire the community college on contract, run a six-week program to help our our 40 of our frontline workers learn this new technology, you know, upgrade or whatever. They don't tend to think longer term about community colleges as source as, as talent pipelines for them. And again, that you know, US employers notoriously are you know, kind of bottom line, short term, you know, next quarter, uh, you know, uh, uh, is what they tend to be to be focused on. So this is requiring a kind of a cultural shift. But so start with start with employers and community colleges much more in the center of the of the work. Those would be the two big lessons, I would say, that we've learned. But
0: but the implications also, Bob, just uh, before I move on, the implications for the high school itself.
1: Well, so so now this is this you raised that because we're also pushing hard on kind of universalizing the idea that only some kids now have access to, which is getting kids started on college while they're still in high school. And in the US, I mean, this sounds to people in other countries like, wait, this is a crazy idea. Wait a minute, you got high schools to do this, colleges to do that, but we have a ton of, of now of evidence that particularly for kids who don't come from college going families, and didn't in their minds think about, you know, college is for somebody else. That's not for me. It's expensive. It's, you know, what 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 do I need it for? That well-structured programs that support whole cohorts of kids to get started while they're in high school on college course taking, while they've got the kind of support, you know, that good high schools can provide them. This is turning out to be really, really powerful. And, you know, so you know, we, the idea would be you're getting kids started on these programs Career-focused yes. programs that the colleges and employers have already started to design together, and if you can get employers then to invest, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a high school junior and I'm already enrolled in my in my community college because I'm already taking courses and I started taking courses, an introductory course in IT, yeah. maybe then you know some of the IT employers who've been involved in designing that course will say, hmm. Let's offer the high school kid a good summer job in one of our companies between his junior yeah. and senior year. Get yeah. him already hooked in our company. Help him see why he should continue on in the community college. And we're building this kind of you know pipeline. And that the, the you know we think that model has a lot of promise.
0: And it and it gives meaning to uh, the power of work-based learning. Yeah, I work-based
1: learning is you know I mean is, it is that's at the core of this of this work and a challenge everywhere we work is scaling work-based learning so that it becomes virtually universal and yeah. that requires a level of mobilizing of employers helping them to see why it's in their self-interest uh, and having uh, intermediary organizations that are employer-facing that can do the what i think of as the, as the scaffolding that can both at the work help employers design programs so that kids are not simply, you know, running a Xerox machine or going off and getting caught. But they're they're being given tasks that have some learning attached to them. And they also have a supervisor or, you know, who's giving them kind of coaching and support. That's what makes these programs work. Uh, And you can't rely on the company to know how to do that by itself. And you certainly can't rely on the school to be able to do it. So that's why you know we talk about the importance of the, what we call employer-facing intermediary organizations that are set up to do this go-between uh, work. We happen to have one of the very best in the country in Boston. Uh, it's been around for thirty years. It's called the Boston Private Industry Council. It was. It's always been private sector-led and private sector-focused, and right from its beginning, it's had a strong focus on in-school youth, which is
0: quite unusual for organizations of this type in the U.S. But- well, let me. It hasn't escaped people's attention that <laughs> this is a moment uh, in which some people say, "Look, uh, we're on the move, right? Whatever language you want to use, you've you've often, I think, wanted to be clear about a career pathway system." Correct. You've you've talked about that in a way that I think is distinctive. It's not, as you said before, a question of just. Uh, uh, an iteration on a career and technical system. And we have got a federal government, a Biden administration talking about skills development strategy, workforce strategy, right? Of a completely different order, it seems to those who are observing. Are we really at a moment where I think, uh, you might've actually said this, where the wind is at our back, where we're on the move. Yeah,
1: we, you know, I- I don't know whether Ram Emanuel was actually the person who said it, but he he said something about, you know, a crisis is too good an opportunity to waste. We've got a crisis here also and the pandemic has thrown, you know, a a whole an army of low wage workers out of work, particularly in the hospitality industry. And a lot of these restaurants are not going to come back. Uh, And there's a clear message that we need a reskilling system, really, that, you know, at scale. To be able to help uh, these workers take advantage of the skills they already have, and figure out how you can adapt them to other settings, and how you can how you can build on them and give them additional skills. And again, the community college when you look around and you ask what institution is already you know publicly funded uh, you know to 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 work with learners like this, that it's it's the community college system. But yes, I'm I'm enormously encouraged by the Biden administration. Um, one small—it might seem incidental, but not so little fact. Such an fat, incidental fact is that his wife is a community college teacher, a longtime community college teacher at a great community college. So he's got a voice, you know, that he's listening to every day about the importance of investing in community colleges. But also because between the American Rescue Plan already enacted, you know, with billions, billions of, of dollars. This infrastructure bill that looks like it's going to move through after you know a lot of jockeying. There's now seems to be you know, a bipartisan uh, consensus behind it, uh, and another very ambitious you know bill that will be if it passes will pass with only Democratic votes. But the point is there's going to be a ton of investment out there in uh, in, in, uh, in 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 workforce and workforce development. He it's clear for, Biden has said this from day one that work and and workers. Uh, are kind of central uh, to his administration. Uh, the fact that you know he took the mayor of Boston, uh, my hometown, uh, Marty Walsh, to be his labor secretary, a union guy, a guy who was actually was a union official before he became mayor. Uh, we, we haven't seen this kind of union person in a cabinet level position at least in my lifetime. That that tells you something uh, important as well. So yeah, I'm I'm optimistic. I do think this is a this is a moment of opportunity in the U.S. Um, you know, I worry that um, you know we may not be well enough set up to take advantage of what's going to be a significant you know inflow of dollars. But um, this is what uh, this is what keeps me going, well after I should have uh, you know kind of hung up my shoes. And uh, uh, but this is this is uh, you know I think this really is a moment. Of opportunity. I should say, you know, I'm I'm I, if I can do it, one more sort of <laughs> modest commercial. My new home after years at the Graduate School of Education, I've actually retired twice from Graduate School of Education, but I've migrated over um to the Kennedy School because I and three other faculties, now they're now four faculty members and a fabulous full-time kind of executive director. We created something called the Harvard Project on Workforce. This was in 2019. We're only two years old, we have modest funding. But what's so striking to me is We've attracted this, this fabulously talented group of students from across the university who want to work on these skilled issues, you know, skill and workforce development issues with, with us. Um, we've run an ongoing seminar on the future of work. We turn away many more students than we can take. We're yep. in the summer fellowship program where we put teams of students at work with public agencies, federal level, state level, and in, in, in Boston. Working on workforce issues, you know, with agency clients. So again, just you know, in, in this big, highly decentralized, you know, research university, you know, we've created this little hub for both faculty and students who want to work on these issues. And it's clear to me that, you know, we could grow tenfold, you know, with with additional, you know, resources. There's there's that much interest in this,
0: you know, in this agenda. Well, Bob, we, we are absolutely delighted. You're going nowhere, right? So. Um whether it be uh, all of your friends at NCE or across the work of the network in the US and in other places, but particularly also to stress the connections that you continue to have with our global community. And this is a global ed talk that has connections to all of the places that you've talked about. Uh, We are delighted that you continue to lead and stimulate this work. And as you point out, we're talking about the potential here for a, a new, educated workforce with all young people participating for a new and emerging economy. Nothing could be more significant and important when we think about the relationship between education and learning, workforce and the economy. And we thank you for your continuing leadership. Bob Schwartz, thank you very much. My pleasure, Tony. Thank you.